The following message was given by Raymond Goodlett on Sunday, April 16th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. I want to wish you a happy Easter, and I want to ask all of you to open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. We're going to conclude our series in the book of Ruth today as a church, and if you haven't been with us, we've taken the last five weeks to read this short story, uh, which many believe is the, is the greatest short story ever written in the history of the world, at least a short story of this size. I usually give the nod to the short stories that we call the parables of Jesus, because they're from Jesus, right? But this is, this is one of the most powerful short stories the world has ever seen. We're going to wrap up our time in Ruth this week, and we're going to do something a little bit different because it's Easter Sunday. And because of the sense that I'm, I'm getting right now, we're going to read the whole chapter, which is typical for us here. Just, we're going to read that through, complete the book of Ruth that way. But then I'm just going to take a moment to focus on a couple of things. One, I'm just going to, I'm going to focus on one particular thing in this last scene. We're going to see a woman named Naomi. She's an elderly woman who has moved back to Bethlehem where she grew up, and she's had a really hard time in life. She's questioned God's love for her. She's been bitter and upset with God for how things have turned out. But now she finds herself at the end of the book getting a chance to see what God was up to. We're going to take a moment to look at that last scene with Naomi holding a baby and, and see if we can't take away something that God wants, I believe, all of us to leave with after our time studying the book of Ruth together for these six Sundays. And then the last thing I want to do, since it's Easter Sunday, is just kind of look at, at a part of this passage in chapter 4 that really points us to Jesus and to the power of the resurrection. Now, you might say, well, how, how, how is that the case? Jesus isn't mentioned in this passage at all, and I, I understand why you would say that, but stick with us for the next 30 minutes or so, and I trust that you'll see it. Let me pray, and then we'll get going with Ruth chapter 4. Father... Um, we, we look forward to what you'll do here this morning. We thank you so much for what you've done to gather us all here like this in this room. Uh, we trust you to move, and we trust you to do what you've purposed in your heart to do for every man, woman, and child in this room. If there's anyone that walked in this morning not being an everyday follower of Jesus and not, not being someone who trusts in him every day, for guidance, who sees him as their supreme authority in life, who determines for them what is right or wrong. If, there, if there's anyone in here this morning who is not described by that, I pray that you would reach their heart. You would show them your son Jesus this morning and that they would see him as he truly is. And for anyone else who walked in relating to Jesus that way, I just pray that you would strengthen our faith. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate, and he sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Now, pause there. If you haven't been with us, this guy, Boaz, wants to marry a girl named Ruth. Everybody knows what that feels like. Here's a boy. He wants to marry a girl. There's one problem. There's another man in the way. This other redeemer he's speaking about in the way that these, these things work in this culture, he has the first right of redemption. So all that means is that there's a transaction that's going to take place. And Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth are going to be rescued from poverty by this transaction. Somebody with extreme wealth is going to swoop in 
and act as a redeemer. That means he's going to rescue them from their poverty and promise to provide for and care for all of their needs for as long as they live. And he's going to do more than that. He's also going to provide an heir by marrying the younger widow in this story, Ruth. So that's what's going on. There's an act of redemption taking place, and it's actually a legal proceeding. So when Boaz goes to the gate here, this is actually functioning as a courtroom. And he's hoping that this other guy will not exercise his right of redemption, because if he does, he gets to purchase the land that Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband, owned, and he gets to marry Ruth, and Boaz does not want that to happen because, of course, he wants to marry Ruth. So let's, let's pick up the story. That's a little bit of a review. So Boaz gets to the gate, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. All through this book, we've seen the invisible hand of God moving things along. And here it is again. Boaz has to find this guy, and he just happens to walk by. No, see, God was at work. That's why this gentleman is walking by at this precise time. See, and, and the same is true for all of us in this room this morning. You, you have whatever reasons you have in mind for why it is you're in this room. You just decided to come. You were invited. But there's something you might not be considering, and that's the fact that there is an invisible hand of God, the God who created you, who is also in the list of causes for why you're sitting here right now. And so this guy just comes by, so Boaz said, hey, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. Now, that word friend in the original Hebrew language, this story was written in Hebrew, that word friend is a, a couplet of rhyming words that basically says, well, Joe Schmo is a good way to think about it. This, Boaz is no big fan of this guy. He says, hey, Joe Schmo, come here, come here. Sit down right here. And then he turned, and that guy, he sat down, and then Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, you guys too, you sit down here. And so they all sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, now Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And so the other guy, Joe Schmo, said, I will redeem it. See, this sounded like an attractive offer to him. This guy is approaching this like an investor. Wait, you mean there's a plot of land that has become available for pennies on the dollar? I get to add this to my portfolio. I can use it to gain profit by sowing crops there, and I can sell all that. This is, this is really good. And in terms of the cost-benefit analysis, all I have to do is take care of the minimal needs of one aging widow for a certain number of years, and then she'll be out of the picture. That seems worth it. That seems like I win in this transaction. So he says, you know, I, I will. I'll redeem it. And then Boaz <laughs> gives him the rest of the story. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, not so quick, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth. And remember, she's a Moabite. You, you acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. 
So see, without making a story too long, you can go back and read in another part of the Bible in Leviticus chapter 25 and also in Deuteronomy chapter 25. In particular, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, something called leveret marriage is explained. If a woman was married and her husband died and she became a widow, it was the duty of a brother-in-law, of that, that husband's brother, to perform the duties of a brother-in-law. He was to go and take his, his deceased brother's wife, to take her as his own wife for the purposes of providing an heir for the family so that the name wouldn't be blotted out in Israel. That was a big deal. So you can read all about that in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Now, this is what Boaz is bringing up. He says, you, if you buy this field, it's not just a transaction that increases your portfolio here. You have some obligations here. I think you're underestimating the cost. You'll have to marry this Moabite woman, this Moabite woman, Ruth, and you'll have to provide an heir for her. And by the way, that child born, that son born from that union, he will inherit all of this land and all of this wealth and all of this opportunity. You have to do this strictly out of a heart of service. And then his answer changed. <laughs> well, in that case, verse 6, you know, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. You, take my right of redemption for yourself. I cannot redeem it. Now, here was this strange custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. Boaz is now about to redeem Ruth. He is about to secure through that redemption a relationship with her. She will become his wife. But it wasn't just enough for him to complete this transaction. There also had to be witnesses and there had to be proof that he had actually succeeded in redeeming Ruth. And so here's what they did. There was a custom where one guy would take off his shoe and give it to someone else. Now, ask me why. I kind of know, but I wouldn't explain it now. It would take me too long to explain that. It's really weird. But Boaz is about to get somebody else's shoe as part of the deal. So here it is, verse 7. Here was the custom concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal, I'll spare you, I won't do that, and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he, he drew off his sandal, and then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, and I, I imagine he's got the other guy's shoe here. He's got a flair maybe for the dramatic, and he says, now, you are witnesses this day, I'm tempted to take off my shoe and hold it, but I feel for you in the front row. You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malan, his two sons. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance in order that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his brother's and from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. And you are witnesses this day. And then all of the people who were at the gate and all the elders said, we are witnesses this day. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. I won't go too much into that, but if you read the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapters 29 and 30, you get that whole story. May the Lord make you and make the woman coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, and may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamor bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord 
will give you by this woman. And for that story, just read Genesis chapter 38. So now you know where to go to do your homework to get all the details behind that story, and we'll move on. Verse 13. So Boaz, I imagine, again, doesn't say it in the text, but this is my version of it. I think he's got the other guy's shoe. He goes back home, and everybody understands what that shoe means, right? This is kind of like an engagement ring. How, how about that, ladies? <laughs> I don't have a diamond for you, but this other guy's shoe, you know, here it is. So he goes back, and verse 13, he comes back with the proof that he has redeemed Ruth, if you'll allow me to use my sanctified imagination here. And he takes Ruth, and she became his wife, and then he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, watch this, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to, you'd expect them to say Ruth here, yeah? A son has been born to Naomi. There's a reason for that. A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David, who would later become the king of Israel. And then it ends with this epilogue. Now, these are the generations of Perez, the child who was born all the way back in Genesis chapter 38. From him, Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Lord, help us to make sense out of this and to quickly, with the rest of our time, look at something you want us all to take away from the book of Ruth, and then one thing that points us to Jesus and the power of the resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray and give thanks, amen. I want you to look at me, or with me rather, <laughs> look at me, at this last scene where Naomi is holding this child in her lap. Now, if you followed the rest of the story up to this point, then you know that Naomi began this story suffering a great deal. In chapter 1, we read about a famine she endured at Bethlehem. That famine ended up taking her family. They had to move just to find food. They ended up moving to a country called Moab, about 90 miles away. They walked there by foot. And they got to Moab, they found food, but things took a deadly turn in Moab. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And after he died, his two sons married women who were outside of God's covenant community of faith. These were not the ideal marriages for God's people. In fact, they were strongly encouraged against doing that because they were told that if you marry wives who don't believe in the one true God, they will entice your hearts to worship false gods as well. But these two young men married Moabite women there in Moab. One's name was Orpah. The other's name was Ruth. They eventually died there in Moab, those two boys, Malan and Kilian, died, leaving Naomi with her two daughters-in-law in a strange land. Well, after that, she decides to go back home to Bethlehem, and she actually encourages her daughters-in-law to stay there in Moab. She said, you know, stay here. It'll increase your chances of finding a husband and a future and making a family for yourself. Don't come and be miserable with me. And Orpah took her up on that and stayed in Moab, but Ruth went back to Bethlehem with Naomi. 
Ruth, somewhere along the way, had not only developed an affection and love for Naomi, her mother-in-law, but she had come to believe in the one true God of Israel. And so she followed Naomi back to Bethlehem. But Naomi suffered a whole lot in the beginning of this story. And here at the end of the story, the last scene, we don't see Ruth, for whom the book is named. We don't see Ruth sitting here holding her own child. We see Naomi holding this child, and the Bible saying, a son has been born to Naomi. Well, friends, the reason that is, is because God wants us to understand, in as much as this book is named Ruth, the bookends of this have to do with the transformation of Naomi. In the way that she views God. Naomi is bitter with God in the beginning because of everything she's suffering, but now she sits here holding a, a, a small piece of God's answer to that question we all ask at times. Why has this happened to me? Why did I have to go through this? Where was God when this happened? And most of the time that we ask that question, we don't get an answer, at least not one that we can understand. But sometimes, in his, in his special mercy toward us, God reveals a part of that answer even now in this life. And Naomi was sitting there holding a part of the answer to her questions as she looked at little Obed right there on her lap. And if there's one big thing that God wants all of us to take out of this book of Ruth in the six weeks that we've been studying this, I would say that it's this. Here's how God has taught it to me. He says, Raymond, create a folder in your heart. Now, we have a filing system in my house. So we've got a folder that says bills. That one, for some reason, is always full. Bills, right? And then, and then I've got another folder, checks from other people. That's always empty, right? So, so here's bills and the different folders. But we have a filing system where we put things away and we deal with them at the appropriate time, right? God has said to me, Raymond, put a file in your heart. Put a folder in your heart, and I want you to label it even this. And then I want you to read Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. The reason we've asked you to memorize this verse as we studied Ruth is because the book of Ruth is one of the best illustrations of this truth. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says this. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. He says, and we know that. All things are working together for good. Even famine, the death of the husband, the death of my sons, even all those things. And, and I think Naomi at the last scene of this book can hold that little baby in her lap and she can say, you know what? With hindsight, even that, even that, even that was accomplishing God's purpose. Even that was working according to his plan. Even that was working ultimately for my good as God defines it. Even that, even that, even that. As she looked back, she could say, even that. And I think what God wants us to be able to do as his people is to not even have to wait for that hindsight anymore. But to be able to look right in the midst of our suffering, to be able to look at some of the things that bring the most pain into our life, and to be able to say, even this. Even this is working for our ultimate good. I may not know how, but I have learned to trust God, even this. Lord, would you help us to create that folder in our hearts, and would you teach us 
how to live that way, to no longer doubt your goodness, but to trust you in whatever you have decided to bring into our lives. We, we pray for that in Jesus' name, amen. And I'll tell you how that's worked in my life. Three years ago, my dad died from pancreatic cancer. I remember asking God to heal him. I remember asking God especially to save him. My dad at that point did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ that would amount to salvation, or at least I couldn't see that. And so I was praying and praying. And I remember before my dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, I would pray to the Lord, Lord, whatever it takes, would you just do whatever it takes to reach his heart? Anything, Lord, anything. This guy, he won't listen to you. He certainly won't listen to me. Would you do whatever it takes? And would you know, God answered my prayer. He, he answered my prayer. And part of the answer to that prayer was my dad coming down with pancreatic cancer. Now, I, I, that was not what I was asking God for. And I prayed that God would heal him. I, I even went and did the Hezekiah thing. Lord, in the Bible, you gave Hezekiah 15 more years. I just prayed, Lord, give my dad 15 more years. Let him see my kids grow up. Let him hold them for just a little bit longer. And, and through all those tears and prayers, he, he died. I watched my dad breathe his last on December 17th, 2013. Sometimes, though, God gives you a little glimpse, even before this life is over. And sometimes he lets you hold a tangible piece of his answer to your prayers. Four hours. Four hours before my dad breathed his last, he cried out to Jesus, Jesus, save me. Lord, save me. Lord, I believe. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. And I held my dad's hand. He cried out to Jesus, and I just said, look, Dad, you don't have any more work to do. He, he knows exactly how to save you. He's done it all. He's redeemed you. He's gone into the one place where your case can be settled with God. You and I can't get there, but he went right into the throne room of God and brought your sins and brought your life and your record before God and poured his blood out on that. You can rest. Four hours later, my dad went to the Lord in perfect peace. There were only two people in the room with my dad at that time. I was one of them. I was so taken up in the moment that I couldn't remember who the other person was. I knew it was one of my brothers, one of my younger brothers, but whether it was Robert or Ronald, I couldn't remember. Two months after that, my youngest brother, Ronald, calls me and says, Ray, what are you doing this Sunday? I said, what do you mean? I'm a pastor. What do you mean, what am I doing this Sunday? <laughs> I do the same thing I do every Sunday. So I, I, I get this phone call, and he, and he says to me, can you come up to Maryland and baptize me? I'm getting baptized in my church this Sunday. My younger brother wasn't walking with the Lord. I've been praying for him, and nothing seemed to be working as I talked to them. And all of a sudden, all this stuff is happening, and I'm not doing anything. And I'm like, this, this is how it works. It's, it's not us that really get to people and, and save them. It, it's Jesus. Look, the resurrection, if it means anything, it means he's alive. He's still alive. That's why he can change everything about our lives right now. It's not just some dead, cold truth, some doctrine. He's alive. 
And I've watched him save my family members one by one. My, my youngest brother, Ronald, calls me. He says, can you come and baptize me in my church on Sunday? I'm like, man, your church must not have any rules. Can I just come in and do that? <laughs> sure. Sure. They don't know me from Adam, but yeah, I'll come baptize you. And they let me preach there and everything. I mean, it was unbelievable. Uh, so I, I was like, well, what, what happened? I'm not just going to baptize you, you know, just because I want to, and it sounds like a good idea. And he started to tell me this story, and he said, you know, for the last two months, ever since, ever since I watched Dad cry out to Jesus in that hospital room, I, I just haven't been able to get it out of my heart. And, and it, again, I was taken up in the moment, and I should have been paying more attention to what my brother was saying, but, but I'm, I'm such a, like, detective, I'm like, oh, it was him. He was the other person in the room. Uh, <laughs> And then I came back and I was like, oh, okay, yes, I'll come baptize you. My, my youngest brother began to explain this, this it just in what he said in the next five minutes, I could tell it was real. He wasn't just tinkering around with religion. Jesus had gotten to his heart, the living and resurrected Savior who's still alive to reach you today. He got to my brother. And I went up to Maryland and baptized him, came back, and, and I'm still praying for, for my other two brothers. And maybe you're still praying for people. Listen, I just want to encourage you. Jesus is alive. He can. He can save those we're praying for. He often does. Let me move on. Let me move on before I keep crying. Something that points us, I've gotten ahead of myself, to the resurrection power of Jesus. Look with me at this, this other part of chapter 4 really quick. Ruth chapter 4, starting here in verse 13. Boaz takes Ruth. She becomes his wife. And the Lord allows her to conceive, which is, which is a small miracle. Boaz has no idea this is how this will end up. He knows a little bit about Ruth's history. She was previously married for about 10 years, and there were no children from that union. And so here it is, very shortly after marrying Ruth, the Lord allows her to conceive. She bears a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. Now watch this. God has not left you without a redeemer, Naomi. Now, who is that redeemer? Who are they talking about? Boaz, right? Watch this. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law, this is Ruth, who loves you and who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Wait a minute. The Redeemer they're talking about in verse 14 is no longer Boaz. It's the baby. It's Obed. You see, what Boaz is doing here as a redeemer is simply paving the way for another redeemer who will come after him. And in the story, most immediately, yes, it's the baby Obed, but listen, if you, if you have the eyes to see it, here's how I'll put it to you this morning. There's a young woman who recently traveled to Bethlehem and gave birth to a baby there in Bethlehem who is known as the redeemer and a restorer of life. Friends, 
Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You've come to this building today, but have you come to Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life? Have you seen him in the scripture? See, there's a baby born in Bethlehem who is the redeemer and the restorer of life. And, and nothing could point us more to the resurrection this morning than that. Nothing could point us more to the resurrection than this business of Jesus being the redeemer and the restorer of life. And in fact, Jesus is such a restorer of life. It's one thing for a medical professional to be involved in a healing process and to restore life. Jesus restored life to himself. He said, I have authority to lay down my life and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus died on a cross where redemption took place for us. As our Redeemer, the place where Jesus made the transaction that rescues us from the worst possible situation, where our sins separate us from God, where our sins put us in a place where we would rightly deserve the punishment and judgment of God, Jesus stepped in between us and God and he completed a transaction, a redemption that rescued us from that place that we could not rescue ourselves from. Look at Romans chapter 3. Here's how Romans chapter 3 says it. Over in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 23, it says this, there is no difference. All of us are like or under sin, it says in chapter 3, verse 9, and then it says there's no difference. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone in this room, in one sense, there's no difference between me and any of you when it comes to the fact that we've all sinned before God. We're all equal there. People are fascinated today with equality or inequality and everything should be structured on the basis of making things equal. And we, we refuse to re recognize the one place where we actually are all equal. In our sin. There's no inequality there. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the what? Look at Romans 3. Look at that. And are justified freely as a gift by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to say, whom God put forward as a, and it gives you another big word you don't understand. Whom God put forward as a propitiation to be received by faith. A propitiation in His blood. What, what is that? Well, just, just to try to make it simple, hopefully a six or an eight-year-old could understand this. A propitiation is something that you give to someone who's angry at you, that you give to someone who, whose displeasure you have come under, and when you give it to that person, it satisfies them, it absorbs their wrath, and it causes them to look at you with favor again. That's, let me just say it that way. God puts Jesus forward as a propitiation, and here's what I want you to get. If you're not a Christian here this morning, or if you are a Christian here this morning, here's what we have to get. The reason Christianity is different from every other ideology or religion on the planet is because of what it says here in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Every religion will tell you that there is some God out there that you need to please. And if it's not a religion, there is some ideology out there that will tell you, you know what, you just have to please everybody in the crowd. Do whatever it is that, that makes them think well of you. Right? I, that's my secret 
belief as to why everyone in Hollywood seems to have the same opinion. There's no way that's true. But they want everyone to think well of them. They want to advance their careers by saying what's popular. The difference between Christianity and every other religion is every other religion will tell you, here's what you need to do to please this God who is upset with you. You need to bring a propitiation forward and you need to choose the right thing and, and put, put together some list of good deeds, put together some bunch of good deeds that will cancel out your bad deeds, put it before God and it will be enough for him to be satisfied with the life that you've lived and he will receive you and accept you. Bring your propitiation, some apology, some record of good deeds, something that will cause God to look at you favorably. The difference with Christianity is this. In Christianity, it is God who puts forward the propitiation. God is the one who chooses what will satisfy him, and God puts forward what will satisfy him. He chooses his own son and says, here, things aren't right between you and me, but I am choosing someone who will be a sacrifice for you, and that sacrifice will satisfy me on your behalf. And God selects his son Jesus and puts him forward as a propitiation on the cross. And the reason God accepts and forgives every single person who turns to faith in Christ is because they are saying to God, I accept what you have chosen. I trust that what you have chosen to, to fix what is right between me and you is what will work. I agree that you know how to do this. And everyone who tries to do it some other way is saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. That's a foolish way to try to make things right between sinners and you. Choosing your son who is innocent and allowing him to be betrayed and murdered. And that's a terrible idea. What kind of a religion is that? And they go and they just say, you know what? I've got some good deeds here that I want you to consider. Surely if you exist and if there's a heaven to be entered into one day, if all of this is real, then certainly what I've done has to be good enough. And what kind of God are you if you don't accept that? And most of the people who say that to God look like really good people to you and me. But their hearts are so far away from anything that heaven would recognize as humility. Maybe that's you this morning. I, I mean, I don't know. But maybe that's what you're thinking. I can just put together a list of good deeds and some, something that God will accept. No. God has already gone through the, the difficult process of sending His Son to the cross. He has already chosen a propitiation, a sacrifice to plead for you. He will not accept your best efforts as a consolation prize. He will not. If, if that offends you, I, I'm very sorry, but you know what? A, a friend of mine that I, I played with on the Richmond Kickers just, just 10 years ago, two weeks, three weeks ago, he was sitting in church and he died. He had a heart attack in the middle of church. I'm not saying that's going to happen to you this morning. <laughs> I'm just saying I don't know if it is or not. And the last thing I want to do is blow smoke in your direction. God put his son on the cross, 
had him crucified and said, this is the only way for people like Raymond to be made right with me. That's why I'm doing it. That's why Jesus went. And that's why he raised his, his self from the dead. God raised his son from the dead as the proof of our redemption. It worked. The sacrifice he made for us worked. He brought back the shoe. That's, if you think about the resurrection, there's a new way to think about it, kids. Jesus brought back the shoe <laughs> as the proof that what he did for us worked. Father, I just pray that you would take whatever I said today. I don't even remember what it is, but I, I pray that you would take whatever I said and that if there's anyone in here this morning that has never come to you in faith, oh, I just pray that you would, you would do for them what you did for my dad and for my brother, for me 20 years ago. Yes, it's still 20 years. And, and for so many of us in this room. We ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Raymond Goodlett given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.